0: My name is Cade Courtley, and this is Can You Survive This Podcast? This show is designed to teach you techniques that will increase your chances of survival if you happen to find yourself or your family in any life-threatening disaster scenario imaginable. Each episode will put you smack in the middle of a new disaster scenario as I challenge my guests to see if they have what it takes to get out alive. Knowledge is power, people. Can you survive this podcast? Folks, my fellow survivors, if you can hear the sound of my voice, it means you're still alive and it is my continued mission to keep it that way. Welcome to another episode of k Survivors Podcast. I'm your host, Cade Courtley. Today, we have an amazing guest, a true survivor. He is a retired United States Navy SEAL officer, served over 21 years of service with multiple combat deployments to uh, South America, Iraq, Afghanistan. He's a New York Times bestselling author. I didn't even realize he could read when we went through training, but he is a best-selling author, which is amazing. I want to say a quote real quick before I introduce our guest. The mark of a person is not found in his past, but how he overcomes adversity and builds his future. Quitting is not an option. Folks, chew on that for a while because we're in a time when we need to live that kind of life. Our guest is also, he was a fellow graduate from the Mighty Buds Class 202. Please welcome a true survivor, Jason Redmond. Jay, welcome to the show. It's awesome to see you after 25 years.
1: Kate, awesome to be back. 202, the last hard class
0: in butts. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. everybody else got their diplomas in the mail. We actually earned it, right? Yeah. 202, yeah. the mighty. <laughs> that's right. Man, it's a, it's a trip. I was looking at your bio, I, and obviously we know each other really well, but you joined the Navy on September 11th, 1992. And do you ever imagine what would happen nine years later and how that would change your life? That's a, that's a trip.
1: No. And I mean, what an amazing thing. I don't even know if I realized it until one day I was looking at my, you know, service record and obviously went back and looked at that. But yeah, 17 year old kid with just aspirations joined while I was still in high school, signed up for the delayed entry program. And Obviously, that next summer, as soon as I graduated, headed off to uh, boot camp and then follow on. Bud's was a little backed up. So obviously waited a little while before I got to uh, join the the illustrious and the amazing
0: crew. (laughs) Did you go, did you start 202 and go straight through?
1: No, I started 200. Okay. So yeah, I started with class 200. I made it through uh, Hell Week with 200. So we,
0: we Hell Week together as well.
1: Yeah, and Ray and I did also. Yeah. So Ray and I were in the I was uh, I am an illustrious member of the Smurf crew in Hell Week.
0: Yeah, so, so you remember uh, the Mighty Boat crew too that won every race. Who who was the boat crew?
1: I you know, I oh, do that's know right. the, that was my Smurf, boat crew. The Smurf crew we lost every race. <laughs> that's what I remember. We were the guys that were always sitting outside the chow hall with watch eating MREs for almost every meal. So basically you had it easy. And we actually got full benefit. Really? So. <laughs>
0: because I, I heard it pays to be a winner.
1: So you know, but anybody can go through and win. You know, it's the individuals who are like, you know, we want full benefit. That's what we said. That was what we talked about in the Smurf group. Hey guys, let's let two win. That way, we get full benefit. Yeah, that's
0: right. That's okay. That's, yeah. Now, now I'm remembering. For anybody yeah. who doesn't, anybody doesn't realize it. Hell, we're really only getting about forty five minutes to an hour of sleep the entire week. But. Everything you do is a race with other boat crews. So if you win the race, you get to sit down for about 10 minutes while everybody else, like Jay here, gets beat up. So we went with the whole strategy. Let's win everything and try and get a little. It
1: was was a great strategy. Well,
0: I tell you what, I thought I got injured so many times that when I finally got to Hell and Fin and completed it, I loved Hell Week. That sounds weird, but I loved it. I'm like, finally, and I did it, and I got through it, and just watching the guys. You remember the guy, I don't want to say his name, but he was like an incredible athlete. He was out of the water before any of us. He was breathing through his nose on all the runs, and he was basically like, this is the poster child for somebody who wants to be a SEAL. And Tuesday night showed up. He quit, and everybody-
1: he was part of Boat Crew 1. Yeah. Don't you remember? Almost everybody in Boat Crew 1 quit on Mm -hmm. Tuesday
0: night. Well, as soon as he – because we – I actually had the commanding officer come up to me Tuesday afternoon. He's like, hey, we haven't had a Nobel Hell Week in a decade. And so far, you guys are looking really good. Because, you know, you get to Wednesday, then then you're solid because your brain's mush. And as soon as this figure, this Adonis quit, it just the floodgates open because people are like, yeah. oh, damn, if he's quitting, there's no way I can make it through. But that's all right. Yeah. The strong survive, right?
1: Hey man, I was like the quickening. I was like, yes!
0: <laughs> oh man, power! Oh, it, it was awesome. I loved it. But uh, I think it's really amazing. I wish I would have done this. But you went through and you're enlisted, and then you decided to go and get your commission. You got your business management summa cum laude, dude. Impressive, Jay. And I ended just- up, uh, you got your commission in May of two thousand four. Is that correct? Yep. What was it that you said to yourself, you know what? Okay, you'd probably done multiple deployments, enlisted. What was it that you're like, all right, I, I want to be an officer now?
1: You know, I'll be honest. A little bit of it was family history. Both my grandfathers were officers. My sister was an officer. And I had individuals. I was working in training at the time that said, hey, you should, you should think about going down this road. And I was kind of at a decision point in my career. I had the option, obviously, to go to the next tier. I had the option to put in for this commissioning program, and we were still pre 9-11. This is in two thousand, the summer of two thousand, and I was uh, getting pretty serious with a young lady at this point. And I just said, you know what, man, maybe maybe this is a road I should go down. I can always, you know, apply later for this, you know, this other tier SEAL team. So that was kind of the decision point. And then, you know, I'd love to tell everybody, boy, you know, I just hit the ground running. I actually kind of stumbled. After I got commissioned, and that 's a large part of my story in the book The Trident. Ego and arrogance are really dangerous allies, yeah. especially in the military, especially as a leader and uh, you know we went from a peacetime seal teams with very little combat experience to over the period of time I was at school to full on by the time I came back in two thousand and four we probably were at about I don't know, sixty to seventy percent of the SEAL teams were combat experience. And mm-hmm. fast forward another couple of years, I mean, really, the goal was to get everybody, and we accomplished it. But I, I was telling my wife that the last time, you know, when we were in buds, I was a pretty arrogant little shit.
0: I, we all were. I mean, yeah, we we all yeah. were. I, yeah, sure, we were all full of vinegar. I I know I was as, as well, but.
1: Yeah, and I think, and it's a common thing. I see it a lot in, in the military special operations. I also see it a lot in professional sports. I think in anything you do where you achieve a very high level of success at a young age, it's easy to get a little enamored with yourself. <laughs> I know I fell victim to that and then came back from getting commissioned and, and crushed it. I mean, I, I got ranked number one out of the largest ROTC consortium on the East Coast, And came back thinking, you know, hey, man, I'm going to be like patent for the SEAL teams or (laughs) something, you know, and stepped into it. And the world had changed drastically. Here I was, I thought, man, I've got all this experience. I was an instructor. I've done multiple deployments. I've actually been shot at in Colombia. Like, I really know what's going on. And everything had changed. I mean, all our tactics, we quickly learned that the old Vietnam tactics we were using did not work in Iraq and Afghanistan. And we really, there was a big rewrite of all the way we did things. Mm -hmm. And I found myself just behind the power curve on a regular basis. And instead of humbling myself and looking into the really smart sled dogs that I could be like, hey man, I don't know how to do this. Would you help me? Instead, I let my ego get in the way and just thought, I'll just figure it out on my own, which is further kind of damaged my credibility. So anyways, it was an interesting ride. And that's really what that first book is all about, you know, a journey of leadership, to come to understand what it is to be an effective leader to, you know, really have stepped on my dick, and almost got myself kicked out because I wasn't willing to humble myself and say, Hey, Houston, we've got a problem here. Well,
0: I'm Jay, Jay, that's a really awesome, honest answer. And I couldn't wait to get you on to ask you this. You know, you went through several deployments enlisted, you come back to the teams as an officer and you kind of touched on a little bit, but did you look at things and say, Oh man, I guess maybe, maybe I was a little hard on that guy when I was enlisted or "Mm, this is, yeah, there's a little bit more to this than just having a commission and and stuff like that. Did you kind of have to reevaluate a lot of that stuff now that you are a leadership position commission officer in the teams?
1: Absolutely. There are so many nuances of leadership. And you learn that, you know, things just get much more complicated. Interestingly enough, on the battlefield, they're complicated, but they're simple at the same time. And it was really trying to understand that and learn these different situations. I mean, that's one of the biggest things I try and talk to people about now, both businesses and other individuals when it comes to leadership. I learned a lot and I really learned that, you know, both humbling yourself and we talk a lot in the military about leadership by example, Mm -hmm. but really you come to understand. I, I speak often, I wrote about this in my second book, the three rules of leadership that I encouraged any company, any team, any organization to follow. And really, when I screwed up and found myself at Ranger School, I came to find that, you know, I was I was saying, hey, follow me but I wasn't really following these three rules of leadership. And rule number one is lead yourself first. The truly great leaders you see, you know the best leadership advice I was ever given, and this is the fundamental part of rule number one, is people will follow you if you give them a reason to. If somebody's organized, if somebody's structured, if somebody's motivated, despite whatever adversity or problems are going on around them, if they're calm in the chaos, those are the individuals people naturally turn to and say, man, I want to follow that individual. And from there, it just makes it easy. Rule number two is lead others. And leading others isn't telling people what to do. It's giving people the resources and the capacity to be successful, you know, motivating and inspiring them to go off and accomplish great things and letting them do it, not getting in their way and allowing it to happen. And then rule number three, which I, I failed at one point also, is you got to lead always. You don't get to pick and choose when you're going to lead on duty, off duty, whether you're out at the bars or, you know, whether you're at home or whether you're on the battlefield, you know, you got to lead at all times. And and once I figured that out, it made my career path forward a lot easier.
0: Well, it's funny. You know, I stepped on my dick a few times too, because you come out of buds and it's like, okay, I want to be the first through the door every time, violence of action, aggressiveness. Yes, those are all great parts of the job. But I, I had a platoon chief pulling me over and he said, hey, the Navy is invested in this thing. You need to use this more than you're using this so it's like oh i got it and, and you said the nuances of it and stuff like that in that position uh it's cool that you got to see it from both sides and and, and we're successful at both i think it's awesome man so uh ranger school was at a, a they were slapping your pp for that one
1: uh they did and you know it's funny though i needed ranger school
0: did you go to ranger school? No, I didn't feel like losing okay. weight. I, I was, I was good with my weight. I didn't. need. Yeah, to... yeah, no,
1: it is definitely, <laughs> I joke around I, I, a lot, I was lucky it, enough to
0: go to sniper school, but. Uh... It
1: probably is the greatest weight loss program in the, uh, in the
0: country. Yeah.
1: But anyways, it, it was good for me. I needed it. At ranger school, it's a heart and soul. It is a leadership school yeah. and it just is, uh, you know, your ability to lead and focus on problems despite all the adversity around you. I think our officers definitely get that at Bud's, but enlisted guys, sometimes if you're not a boat crew leader, you don't necessarily, you can just get away with going through the motions, if that makes sense. And mm-hmm. people can understand that Absolutely. because it really is a harder level to step up and lead with chaos and adversity and think and make decisions. Whereas for some of us, you know, I was an E2 when I went through Bud's, man, I just, you know, you pointed a direction to go and I went. It's a whole lot different when you're actually having to lead and make decisions. And that's what Ranger School does. And, and I really needed it. It enabled me to come to grips with both my strengths and weaknesses and really understand leadership. And that's, I think, for the first time in my life, it, it helped me to grow up and figure out what it is to lead. And, and a big shout out to all the Rangers out there. I, I showed up at Ranger School thinking it was going to be a joke. Like, hey, man, I've been through buds. Ranger School is going to be a cakewalk. It was not. It was yeah. a kick in the balls. But a good kick in the balls, and it's a great course. So big shout out to all the guys out there that have graduated from Ranger School.
0: Oh, that's cool. You know, we're talking about it a little bit before the show. But I had the fortunate opportunity to join a bunch of Navy SEALs this last weekend in uh, New York and swim across the Hudson, and uh, it was a kick in the nuts as well. But we had uh, Army Ranger Pete Hexeth out there, and and he did it. He did great and represented the Army and the Rangers very well. And We uh, raised a lot of money in the process, so it was a cool experience as well. Hey, let's talk a little bit about uh, your deployment to Fallujah 2007. You were out there as a mobile force commander and assault force commander. You guys did uh, somewhere over 40 direct action ops there during that time in Western Iraq.
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny as a a SEAL, and I know you felt this because you were pre-911 also, a lot of people can't understand, like you want to prove yourself, like you've been through all this training and you want the ability to actually do that training in real combat situations. And there's a lot of people in the civilian world that just can't wrap their head around that. But for me, that Iraq deployment was everything that I ever dreamed of, you know, really at the highest level of being a SEAL. I mean, we were doing direct action missions, going after mid-level and high-level Al Qaeda and insurgent leaders, very kinetic missions. We saw a lot of firefights. So for me, both on the SEAL side and on the leadership side and on the combat side, it was re- a real validation of everything we were doing. And I was literally in the best troop I've ever been in my life. I mean, my my boss was amazing. My, my entire troop was amazing, the guys that I worked with. And it was an incredible deployment. I mean, we really took the fight to the enemy, operating out of Fallujah and then pushing up into a little bit of the Northeast, where after some of the, a couple of the battles of Fallujah pushed on big part of the Al-Qaeda, the heart of Al-Qaeda up there. And we started targeting those guys on a regular basis. And every time we went in there, it was stabbing the hornet's nest and they would all come out. And many of them we captured and a lot of them we sent on their way. So really an amazing deployment. I learned a lot. And obviously, unfortunately, it did not end the way I had, uh, the way I would have liked it. You know, I was on track. I was literally set up the screen as soon as I came back and I was uh, vying for one of the position at our next level SEAL team. And of course, it was two weeks before I was supposed to go home, one week before we were sending the first wave home that myself and some of the guys ran into a pretty vicious ambush and got all shot up.
0: Well, um, I want to get into that here in a minute, uh, that day, September 13th, but you touched on it earlier. There are a lot of folks that have a misconception that Dev Group, SEAL Team 6, They're the only guys that are over there operating overseas. And, you know, they call us the vanilla teams. But Optempo for vanilla is through the roof. You're just talking about just knocking out all those DA, uh, direct action missions that the vanilla guys were doing on a nightly basis. Uh, Just talk a little bit more about Optempo as a vanilla team guy. And no, there are actually other SEALs out there other than damn that guy's doing the job and doing it nightly.
1: Yeah, and I would even say that, I mean, if you expand that, that scope, I mean, just all special operations. I mean, special operations really have become the force of choice post 9-11, which is both a good and a bad thing. Because that off-tempo is through the roof. All around the world, at any given time, we've got special operations forces either doing real-world kinetic missions in combat zones, or they're doing very high-threat missions, you know, surveillance, any type of, you name it, those guys are over there actively doing it and it was the same for us. I mean, even prior to 9-11, you look at, we would do these deployments. I mean, when I was in South America, I mean, we were doing active counter-drug missions all around Colombia and Peru and some of these different places. I mean, one of the nights that we were down there, our camp got shot at. And we actually thought we were being overrun by a 400-man FARC force. Huh. So, And guys, unfortunately, are in dangerous situations around the world, all special operations. So in combat, especially Iraq and Afghanistan, there were more missions that anyone could ever do. And there were more bad guys out there that any one team, whether it's your top tier teams or whether it's your mid tier teams, Rangers, Green Berets. So really we were just everyone across the board. I mean, and we did a lot of joint operations with Green Berets with Rangers, the Marines actually own the battle space. So I did quite a few missions with the Marines or deconflicting and working with them. So that is probably one of the best things that occurred after nine eleven. was there was probably much more inter-service rivalry prior. And afterwards, there was so much work. We all had to work together. And you literally saw it. I mean, everybody was out there just kicking in skulls and making things happen.
0: Well, buddy, you touched on it earlier, but September 13th, 2007, you were an assault force commander and you were going after an HVT, I believe, a high value target. And you guys came under some... Uh, heavy machine gun fire small arms fire would you describe that as an ambush that you basically you guys rolled into take it from here and just obviously another experience that changed your life
1: yeah yeah big time there's been a couple of pivotal days in my life one occurred at ranger school where it shifted my mindset on what leadership is and the other one act you know occurred on the battlefield that night on september 13th and uh It was an area we've been into on multiple occasions, a a really hot area. Every single time we got in there, we got into big firefights. June 21st, probably only several hundred yards from that location, we got a huge firefight. We had several guys wounded. Our interpreter got severely wounded and ended up having to leave country. So fast forward to this night, and a guy we'd been tracking all deployment happened to pop. And... Basically, we thought that he was going to be a specific time and location, something we call a time-sensitive target. So we spun up on it pretty quickly, uh, waiting for the final approvals. Some of the approvals had to go pretty high just because of what was happening. So we were waiting, we're waiting. We finally got approval. About, I don't know, 1 a.m., we launched on this target and we flew to it. We landed on the initial compound and no one was there. Frequently happens. And we really thought it was going to be a quiet night. We found a bunch of IED making components. Basically, our EOD guys were taking all that, they were going to blow it up, and we just thought that was going to be it. While we were sitting there waiting, our snipers started noticing a whole bunch of activity on another house about 150 yards away. And that's unusual, especially after guys in blacked out helicopters come in and they're breaching and making a lot of noise. The only people that typically are moving at night after that happens are bad guys. Yeah. And so we were watching them. My boss came off the ground force commander and said, hey, I want you to take your team. Let's maneuver. We just watched five guys come out of this house and run into some vegetation. We'd seen this before. Oftentimes they would hide, you know, not fully understanding some of our capabilities. Took my team. We maneuvered on these guys. Long story short, we walked into a, a very well-executed ambush. The five guys that our snipers saw were the last part of the security detail for that HVT leader. He was inside the house. We estimate anywhere from a 12 to 14, 15 man ambush line in that vegetation. Two PKM machine guns, oh. multiple 47 shooters. I mean, we were right in the kill zone. Yeah. So six of us, uh, five SEALs and our interpreter, you know, and three of the six got shot up. I was stitched across the body and body armor. I took two rounds in the left elbow, which in the firefight, I actually thought, shot my arm off, rounds off my weapon, rounds off my helmet, left night vision tube shot off. Our medic took a round right below the knee, which almost severed his leg. One of our other guys ran forward to grab the medic and start to drag him back. There was nothing behind us except for thousands of yards of empty Iraqi desert. And fortunately, there was a large, like John Deere tractor tire about 15 yards behind me. So the guys fell back to that. While the medic was shot, or the guy ran forward, I tried to continue to shoot and lay down fire. And it was at that point, I was also yelling, which in the dark, the enemy is pretty smart. The guys we ambushed, or the guys that ambushed us, were very experienced. We later found out they were foreign fighters from someplace with a lot of experience. And obviously, they knew. Hey, key in on anybody that's yelling out commands. It's going to be a leader. Try to mm-hmm. take them out. And I found myself on the receiving end of both of those PKM machine guns, oh. which is a really uncomfortable place to be.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, that's what I wanted to talk about. This is an example of something that this many people that would be listening to this would be able to understand or, or be like, yeah, yeah, I was kind of in a situation like that. You're there. You've taken, you, you've been hit. Thought process. Did everything slow down? You're like, okay, I got to get my guys out of here. What What was the thought process, you know, I'd say uh, with that first 60 seconds after realizing, boom, I'm dinged up. And dinged up is obviously putting it very mildly. Yeah, Sorry, yes. Jay, no, no disrespect.
1: No, 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 man, not at all. So interesting. There were several things that happened. Yes, everything slowed down up until the point. And I took around in the face. And I'm amazingly lucky blessed i mean i think the big man above was watching out for me because all the rounds hit me straight on except for the round that hit me in the face i had actually turned and tried to move back to the tire when the round hit me from behind it caught me in front of the ear and it went through my face and exited the right side of my nose when it happened it actually knocked me out and i don't know how long i was out to this day none of us really know we estimate between five and ten minutes. The firefight lasted about 40 minutes. When I came to, I was laying flat on my back and literally watching tracer file travel over me. So I was laying in between the guys and the enemy and this gunfight was happening. Uh And thankfully, I I kind of recognized it quickly enough to think, okay, you're still in this gunfight. Don't sit up. And then the, the second thing, muscle memory started coming into play. So, and this is a really important thing for those of you out there, If you ever want to survive a situation, think about it ahead of time because your brain is going to go to mush in that moment when chaos is happening. And really, only if you've thought about it before, you've played it through your mind, and hopefully you have even rehearsed some of these different scenarios. And thankfully for us, I mean, we had trained so much, I'd been in enough combat that I knew, okay, you're shot, you're messed up. You got to save yourself. There's no medic that's going to come out here. So my first thought was, I got to get a tourniquet on my arm. I thought my arm had been shot off. I knew I couldn't do a whole lot about my face. I knew I was messed up, but it didn't really matter. My second thought became, okay, what can I control? You know, control what you can. I can't stop this firefight. I am now combat ineffective. My guys are running it. My team leader thought I was dead. And at a lowland fire, I called out to him and I just said, how long till the medevac? And I think at that point he realized I was still alive. And he lied to me and said, five minutes. (laughs) That son of a bitch lied to me like
0: four more times, (laughs) telling me five minutes every time. Any minute now. Any minute now.
1: Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So I started doing what I had been trained to do. And I started thinking about, okay, what can we bring to bear on this problem? So I knew I had my guys behind me. I knew that the other guys were back at the house about 150 yards away. I knew we had drone support overhead. So they had the ISR. I knew that we had helicopter gunships. I knew that we had TF-160th medevac helicopter, and I knew we had the gunship. So I just started thinking about all that, and it was at that point that a lot of these things were starting to happen. I had a really experienced, amazing team leader I owe my life to him, and he was really taken over. And it was at that point I realized, you know, there isn't a whole lot you can do other than, what's the one thing you can control? Well, focus on staying alive. And that really became, my focus because I was losing a ton of blood. Sure. I never managed to get my tourniquet on my arm. Probably about 15 minutes into the fight, we called in the first fire mission where we literally called fire directly on our position. And I've called in a lot of fire. I was a communicator when I was an enlisted guy. Mm-hmm. And then obviously becoming an officer, calling in fire in the combat zone. And I remember my team leader calling out and saying, hey, incoming. And I remember hearing the rounds go off. In the aircraft, and then there was probably about a five-second delay, and these guns were just going off, man. And all of a sudden, it was forty mike mike, and oh, it was only I was only fifty feet from the machine gun that had me pinned down, and literally the rounds started impacting behind, and they blew up and blew dirt and debris over all of us. And I don't know if we were so close that the fragmentation went over us, but no matter what, none of us were hit, and it immediately silenced that gun, and we ended up doing probably five or six more fire missions on our position. At that point, my team leader ran forward, got me, pulled me back, got a tourniquet on my arm, saved my life. And uh, I don't know, probably 10 or 15 more minutes passed before we managed to neutralize everybody and bring in the medevac helicopter, which you know, got me and the other two guys who were all shot up out of
0: here. Jay, you were talking about muscle memory. Did you go back to buds and the whistle drills where you're on your stomach, mouth open, covering your <laughs> covering your ears when that fire mission started? Where you're like, "Oh, yeah, I think I'm supposed to do this."
1: <laughs> no, I, I, I'll be honest, man.
0: I was just kind of like, I mean, you got had, you had a front, I, I was you had a front row seat, up, yeah,
1: dude. I, yeah, and it was amazing. Uh, I will say it was, uh, and I called in a really close fire. On that June 21st firefight, we actually called in fire on a house that was only 60 yards away from us. We ended up taking, we had shooters and a machine gun on that roof. And we literally on the rooftop of the other house. So we had a front row seat. And yeah, much different when you're laying literally, geez, 15 yards from the impact (laughs) ground.
0: What a lot Uh, of folks don't realize is, when somebody gets hurt in a situation like that, people don't just go running to that individual trying to help them out. They've got to deal with the problem or there are going to be more individuals that are hurt or killed. And so it's the old, you went into the classic self-aid, then the buddy aid because you knew, all right, I got to take care of this because these guys have a much bigger problem with these two machine gun nests and, and individuals that are firing on them. So, yeah, folks, you don't go running in and help the guy who's wounded until you've dealt with the problem that you're dealing with. Win the firefight, then deal with the wounded.
1: And that's probably hard for, I don't know, some people. I mean, it was something that I think real quickly, I was like, hey, you're just going to have to be patient, man. And it's your job to stay alive. Like I've never felt any fatigue like I felt. Like everything in me was like, just go to sleep, man. Yeah. felt like I was treading water with 10,000-pound weights, and they were just trying to pull me down in the darkness, and it just took everything in me. But I was like, that's your job, bro. It's your job. Stay awake to stay alive. Your guys are going to win this fight this fire mission, and then we'll bring in the medevac. And yeah, so I like to those guys.
0: Jay, there's a recurring theme. I, you know, I've gotten a chance to talk to all sorts of people who've been through incredible survival situations. And the common theme is don't quit. Right? Yeah. Just don't quit. I mean, you probably saw the curtains closing. You're like, uh-uh, not yet, not yet. That's incredible, man. Well, I tell you what, you're in Bethesda Naval Medical Center recovering, and you wrote a note and you hung it on your door, and I'd like to read it. Folks, here's the note that Jay wrote and placed on his door. Attention to all who enter here. If you are coming into this room with sorrow or to feel sorry for my wounds, go elsewhere. The wounds I received, I got in a job I love, doing it for people I love, supporting the freedom of a country I deeply love. I'm incredibly tough and will make a full recovery. What is full? That is the absolute utmost physically my body has the ability to recover. Then I will push that about 20% further through sheer mental tenacity. This room you're about to enter is a room of fun, optimism, and intense, rapid regrowth. If you are not prepared for that, go elsewhere. Dude, that is... I mean, that's awesome. It's I kind of... Hairs are standing up a little bit. But to come from that and that attitude, that's the same Jay I went through buds with, man. And I love that. Where is the seed for that tenacity? Where did that come from? I mean... Do you have parents that were really tough on you? Did you have a near-death situation before the Navy? Because you don't take a pill to get that.
1: I think it's a combination of a lot of things. I mean, I do think that you know, a lot of people, you get it all the time, I'm sure, Kate. A lot of people ask, you know, what is it that makes a SEAL? And I think some of it is genetic. Some of it you have a little bit of the no-quit gene. Now, I do think you can develop that. Anybody out there can build their level of discomfort and build themselves to be able not to quit. And some people just are better at it naturally. Take a step back. I had a unique experience with that leadership failure. And I'll be honest, that was the hardest road I've ever walked in my life. A lot of people think, oh my God, being severely wounded must have been one of the hardest things you've ever dealt with. It wasn't. It was really damaging my reputation and my credibility as a SEAL, and facing the prospect at one point of almost being kicked out. Being told, hey, there were guys that were like, take him to a Trident review board. I I was suicidal. I actually sat in my room in Afghanistan and put my pistol in my mouth and thought about blowing my head off when all that happened. So to drive forward through that, and this is what builds an overcome mindset. I often speak about this. You want to build your no quit gene? Do hard things. Do things that are uncomfortable. Do the things that even though you don't want to do, and even though everybody out there tells you you can't do it, do it anyways. And that really was that grind to come back and prove I had the ability to lead, to prove I had the ability to be a part of this community and to slowly build back my reputation. It is the longest, hardest road I've ever walked. But it made me so much more resilient than I already was. So by the time I got wounded, I was like, well, you know, this is just something else. You know, just you're going to grind through it. You're not going to quit because you've already been all through all these other things that you're not going to quit. So nothing's going to change now. And that's really what it was. Here's the other thing about that is for many people out there, they need to understand any situation you're in, regardless of training, mental preparation, or anything, you already carry the most powerful weapon in your arsenal. And that is you have a choice. You have a choice in how you're going to deal with it. You can either lay there and feel sorry for yourself and wither up and die, or you can get off that X. And maybe you'll only last a few more seconds. But guess what? You last a few more seconds longer than laying down and dying. I'd much rather die on my feet knowing I'm attacking into it than just to lay there and wither and die. And that's the most powerful thing you have. You have a choice. And so many people in difficult situations that they never thought they'd be able to get out of have gotten out of them by that sheer factor that they actually got up and they drove forward. They chose to try and overcome. And and I don't know, man. That's what I did in that hospital room, I was like, I'm not going to feel sorry for myself. I'm not going to let anybody else feel sorry for me. There were guys and gals around me who were more severely wounded than I was. And that was the other thing that I saw. I was like, you're a leader. So rule number three, you got to lead always. So it doesn't matter that you're all banged up. There's other people around you that you have the potential to motivate and inspire And that's your job as a leader, you know, number two, lead others. So I was like, you know, you got a job to do. Not only did I have these people around me, I had a wife and kids, you know, so I needed to set the example for them. And I don't know, it's just, that's just kind of my mindset that was happening when all that occurred. And I will say this, Kate, it was not a perfect path. It's not like I didn't have moments of doubt. I didn't have hard moments because everybody does. I'm human, just like everybody else. I'll tell you, there was a point when they finally sent me home about three months after my injuries that they had redone my orbit and they had messed it up. And I was in terrible pain. I had massive headaches. I couldn't see. I had to have an eye patch. I was still having nerve issues with my hand. And I'm still traked. I'm still eating out of a stomach tube. I'm still wheelchair and all this. And I remember waking up man, crying my eyes out thinking, is this my future? And then I pushed it off and I was like, no, you shape your future. And, and it's, you know, my daughter came in the room and I'm like, you know, you set the example for her. So get out of this bed and go.
0: It's awesome, dude. I mean, that's folks, if you listen to this, rewind and listen to that a few more times and then you realize maybe your life isn't that bad. There is a direction out and up. You were invited to meet George W. Bush at the White House. What was that experience like? I had to be very cool.
1: It was awesome. I'm really blessed. I've met a lot of famous people and I don't get starstruck very easy. I just kind of feel like, you know, hey, people are people and they, some have great talents and it enables them to do great things. But going to the White House for the first time, it was like something out of a movie and to go in there and be invited into the Oval Office. And he, w- he was fantastic. And I mean, just super charismatic. I mean, he spent 35 minutes with my wife and family, my kids, and I brought my mom and he was just great. And it was an amazing experience, man. I'm just thankful that it occurred. Uh, I actually brought the sign on the door and he signed it. Oh, that's so cool. Between, we then donated it. I didn't feel like it was mine. I felt like it belonged to all the wounded warriors out there. So it it actually hangs in the wounded ward at Walter Reed now after he signed it. We had it framed. But yeah, he was just, uh, he was a guy that I was like, man, I could really have a beer with this guy. I just <laughs> you know, kick back and and I think everybody that has had a chance to meet him and hang out with him has
0: said that. That's what I've heard as well. Even though I think he stopped drinking, that would be a great guy to belly up <laughs> to the bar with. So we have something else in common other than both being graduates of the mighty Class 202. We both climbed Mount Rainier. Tell me a little bit about when you did that July 2010, you had some other uh, wounded service members that you guys went up that. And what time of year did you, uh, did you make the summit?
1: I did it in July of 2010, and we climbed it in honor of uh, Ryan Joe. Ryan served with Chris Kyle, part of Task Force Bruiser, and Ramadi about six months prior to to us getting there. Pretty heavy fighting. And Ryan and I had very similar injuries. My round destroyed my orbit and cheekbone. Thankfully, I was able to save my eyesight, but Ryan was blinded by his. But when we would hang out together, we talked a lot about our reconstructive surgeries and all that. And uh, he had a great, great, real dry wit sense of humor. So we had a lot of fun comparing notes and hanging out. And they, they accidentally, one of the hospitals accidentally killed him after a surgery. One of the surgeries that I, that I also had had an orbital reconstruction Mm -hmm. and they overdosed him on morphine and killed him. So he had climbed Mount Rainier blind the year before I did in 2009. And yeah, they put together a team with a a great group called Camp Patriot that's out of Montana. Mm -hmm. And I said, absolutely, man, I'd be honored to climb for Ryan. So it was a great climb aside from the fact that I got sick. You know, it's funny. People talk about what are the hardest things you've been through, BUDS, Ranger School. Climbing Mount Rainier was one of those things. It's probably one of the top five because I started the climb with an upper respiratory infection. Uh Uh-oh and got up to Camp Muir, which is the 10,000-foot base camp. You acclimate before you make your push to the summit. I don't know if it was a combination of the upper respiratory and the fact that a big storm rolled in. So we were stuck at Camp Muir for a couple of days before we actually did the ascent. But it turned into full-blown bronchitis. I was hacking up big green gobs of crap. And we started the ascent, and we got, I don't know, maybe to 12,000 feet, and I was struggling. Every step was agony. I'm I'm hacking up lungs right and left and the the guides were like this guy ain't going to make it. Like we need to send him down and I was like fuck <laughs> off. No, uh, imagine that. I'm going to the top. <laughs> And it took everything in me to get up there. And I will admit the downside. Like, I want to go climb it again because we took some pictures, but literally I got to the top and laid on my ruck. Yeah. Because I knew, I was like, okay, now you got to climb down, bro.
0: <laughs> I know. I, you, I I did it in, and I'm not trying to one-up you here by far, but I did it in December, 2001. And we spent three days in a snow cave short of the summit because we had full Storm. blizzard conditions and... Uh, yeah. And yeah, it was hard as hell, but it was totally rewarding. I mean, anytime you get to stand on the summit of of an incredible mountain like that, it's just like, take it in. All right, now we got to go back down. Yeah. (laughs) But good on you.
1: It's that climb down that is, uh, you know, because you're so tired and you hit this emotional high from making it to the top. And then. You got
0: to climb. Down. Well, you'll see a lot of folks that have been able to summit some of these incredible mountains and they do die on the way down because, yeah, they're smoked and they kind of let off and like, oh, cool, I did it. No, you got to stay dialed in until you're back to base camp or wherever you're going to stop for the day. It's the classic, like a lot of guys don't get killed in ops except on the X fill. It's like, hey, no. it ain't over till you're back home. Yep. So same thing with climbing. You want to do Rainier again. You let me know. I'd love to join you on that one.
1: Yeah, I'd I'd love to. One of these days, I want to do it where I can actually enjoy the view from the top because I don't even...
0: Yeah, and let's not do a winner approach. That was just kind of stupid. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so uh, after 21 years of service, man, you decide, all right, I've had my fun in the Navy. It's time to move on. And then you basically, in addition to the books that you've written, amazing, uh, you started doing SOF or soft-spoken LLC, speaking engagements. What do you enjoy about that other than the fact that you can... Probably make some pretty cool impacts on folks' lives.
1: Yeah, and I think that's the biggest thing. I mean, I've led a pretty unique life. You know, I've made some big mistakes and I'm very transparent about those mistakes, but all those things are rungs in a ladder that make you better. And I don't care who you are, you know, at the end of the day, humans are humans. Leadership is leadership, teamwork, structure, organization, discipline, motivation, all those things are the same, regardless of the team, organization, or company you work for. So it's pretty neat to get out and just share that message and try and help people to be a little better. I mean, that's kind of my goal that someday when I die, I hope people will say, hey, man, that guy helped me to be better. And that's really my goal. Every time I speak, I'm like, I just want one person to come up to me and say, that really made an impact on me. Like, I really needed that today to move forward. And that's been neat. I've been able to do that all across the US, even internationally a little, and uh, just to share this story and try and help people to build better leadership within themselves, within their own teams, within their own organization, create better balance within your family. Mm -hmm. This life is short. You never know when you're going to go. So making sure that you invest in all the right things, job being one of them, success isn't necessarily always measured by money and helping people to understand that.
0: Well, Jay, you have so many amazing messages that people I think are really starving for right now. So, Folks, anybody who's out there listening to this, how can they get a hold of you to come and speak to folks?
1: Yeah, if you go to jasonredman.com, that's my main website. I'm on all the social media platforms. All on jasonredman.com at the bottom is all my links. I will tell you, I'm most active on Instagram. If you write me on Instagram, I do my best to write back. I don't have anybody else that's uh, responding that it is me. Although sometimes I get inundated and uh, I will get behind. And then, yeah, that's what I'm doing. I've got a group coaching program called the Overcome Army. It's just, I tried to make a program that helps people become the best version of themselves. So you can find that through my website. And that's what I'm doing right now. We're doing a lot virtually. Sure. I just joined a new company, actually. I got a new project. So uh, working in the technology space, a virtual streaming and event technology company out of Dallas. So I'm looking forward to helping to grow them and grow that Get out there with some of this newer technology and make a difference.
0: Oh, that's awesome, buddy. Hey, Jay, if you could have a conversation with 17-year-old Jason Redmond the day before he starts Buds, like a one-minute conversation, what would that be like?
1: I would tell him to humble himself and be a, you don't know everything, you know? And it's funny, as I get older, a lot of people give you advice, and I don't know why it's human nature that we're like, oh, No. You don't know, so I'm going to do, do this anyways because I'm going to do it better than you did it, and I won't have the same problems. And 99% of the time, you have the same problems, and you get to the other side, and you look at that mentor or whoever gave you advice, and you're like, yeah, you were right. So I would tell myself, hey, man, shut your mouth and listen a little more and actually follow the advice that people give you because it's going to make your path a lot easier. Because let me tell you something, dude. You are getting ready to walk a super hard path. And you're going to make it to the other side, but you are going to be fucked up along the way. And if you listen to me, you may still learn, but it'll be a little bit easier.
0: (laughs) So basically, try not to step on your dick repeatedly. Exactly. Jay, we do something on the show, and it's, it's kind of weird for me putting a team guy through this with all your experience, so I'm going to see if I can throw a few curveballs at you to make you earn it, but we do what we call hypothetical survival world, where basically I'm going to drop you into a situation, a life-threatening situation, and you're going to have 10 opportunities to try and get through that. I'm going to give you an option A or an option B, so it's a lot like the Choose Your Own Adventure books if you remember those. Love it. now for every right answer Jay plus 10 points for every okay. r- wrong answer minus 10 points and again based on who you are and what you've done if I consider it a wrong answer I am open to you arguing your point on why you yes. chose okay. the other one so you get that, uh, that caveat given everything you've been through my friend and because you are a graduate okay. of the mindy 202 alright so right. buddy are you ready I'm ready uh, you're always ready brother alright so here you are you're coming out to join me and a bunch of other team guys for elk hunting this winter. Okay. All right? So you've just landed in Denver, Colorado. Flight was late. It's midnight, and you still have a four-hour drive. Weather is nasty in Denver. And again, you still have a four-hour drive to get to a very remote and secret location where we're all going to be hunting. And we're nice. planning on coming up for about four or five days. And here is the situation. Okay? So again, it's uh, almost 1 a.m., before you're able to get a rental car, are you going to get? Oh, any questions about the scenario thus far?
1: I don't think so. One a.m. Denver, El Conte, late at night. I've got a four-hour drive.
0: Nasty weather. Okay, I'm giving. I'm lobbing you a softball on this first one. A. Are you going to rent a cheap economy car, or are you going to spend a little bit of extra money and get an SUV?
1: I'm always going to get the SUV with four-wheel drive. Absolutely,
0: and that's it. absolutely. So. Before you get into the nastiness, you're already ahead with a plus 10. So that was the softball. Here you go. You are three hours into the drive. Very remote area. You're not seeing much traffic. You're lucky that the road hasn't been closed. Your SUV seems to be doing okay. It is negative three degrees out is what your rental car is saying. All right? You're making your way through this blizzard. Right in front of you, there's a deer. Do you aim rate for the deer or do you attempt to avoid the deer? I drive through that bitch like shit through a goose. (laughs) Absolutely. For a few reasons. Traditionally, especially given the weather conditions, the last thing you want to do is some kind of evasive maneuver. Bad idea. If you're going to hit the thing, it's a rental car. You got your insurance. And this just happened to me a month ago. When you aim for it, in theory, more times than not, they will not be there once you get there. Unfortunately, the guy I aimed for took out my front bumper, but that's a lot better than I'm off the road. Okay, you aim for it, you tag it, vehicle gets a little sideways, and boom, you are now off the road, down in a ravine, upside down, you're bleeding from the head, no cell service. Okay, are you going to get out of your vehicle or are you going to address the injury in your vehicle?
1: No, with the negative three degrees outside, I'm gonna climb in the back, get my bag, and uh, I'm gonna address the injury and stay in the vehicle.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, unless obviously the thing's on fire or it's taking in water from the river you're upside down in, give yourself a couple of seconds here, assess the situation, assess yourself. If it's something in the head, obviously you realize more than most people on this earth, that's pretty serious. So you're addressing the injury, buddy, you're already plus 30, right? This is where it starts getting a little more difficult for you jay all right so you address the injury you're in your car you've been in your car for a little while now okay it's been almost an hour you've got your hazard lights on now are you going to stay in that car or are you going to go ahead and say all right it's been an hour i'm going to see if i can climb back up the road and signal somebody try and get somebody try and find somebody
1: i'm going to stay in the car because obviously if i'm going hunting i've got outdoor gear I've got things like that. So I'm gonna put on all the clothing I can. Obviously, the temp's gonna be dropping, but if I'm injured, probably a bad idea for me to be climbing in the dark and ice and negative three temperatures. So I'm gonna stay at least till sunrise is my goal.
0: Okay, and that's absolutely right. Look, you you described it perfectly. Hold tight where you're at. You've got all that extra clothing you can put on. A vice. okay, it's still dark. It's 4 a.m. You haven't heard anything. You didn't see anybody on the drive up. So stay put, that's a plus 40. All right, so the sun's starting to come up. Snow has basically covered your vehicle. And so you decide, all right, it's up to me now. I'm going to have to make something happen here. So are you going to, again, you get up, decide to get up to the road. You don't see anything. Are you going to proceed on foot the direction you came from to try and intercept a vehicle or somebody? Or are you going to say, you know what? I need to build a shelter because it's still pretty damn cold out.
1: I mean, it's early morning, so I probably would go back in the direction I came from for a period of time. And my goal would be to bring, I would assume, I have a ruck if we're doing long term. And I would probably grab some of the gear I need, I would get up to the road, and I would probably go for at least four or five hours, depending on my injury and how I
0: feel. Well, let me, let me help you out with that a little bit. Your injury is pretty bad. You're starting to feel some concussion symptoms. So again, you're up on the road, start heading in the direction you drove,
1: or- All right, if I'm severely injured to where I'm struggling, I would create a marker up on the road. So I would do something to signal to whoever's driving by that I'm there. And then my second step would be probably to create a shelter or something to try and get warm.
0: Absolutely, and you got in front of me, because you're a super sharp guy on that, mark something, hey, I'm here, a vehicle went off here. It's going to give somebody attention Vice, I'm feeling concussion issues, I don't know how much longer I'm going to be vertical if I start exuding a lot of energy to walk down a road, which in a, for all intents and purposes might be closed down at the base. So, alright buddy, you're, you're cranking through this thing. Shocking. Plus 50. Halfway there. Okay, so you've marked your location and you're heading back down to where the vehicle is. Are you going to shelter in the vehicle or are you going to try and build a fire? Vehicle is not operating at all, by the way.
1: I would build a fire. I mean, in that type of situation, fire is going to be the greatest thing that's going to save your life. I mean, it's both for warmth and it's going to signal. I mean, I can put pine boughs on it or whatever that's going to create a lot of smoke. So yeah, I want to build a
0: fire. Nailed it. Absolutely, you're building a fire because you can set up shop down there and somebody might not see that you left on the road. But they're going to see gray smoke, especially, like you said, folks, when you use green stuff like pine boughs, it produces that gray smoke that is just really distinguishable for miles and miles away. So you've done that. All right. Congratulations. Now, are you going to, after you build that fire, get back in the vehicle or are you going to build a snow cave? Again, the vehicle is pretty much covered. So there's some issues you need to think about. Get back in that vehicle or try and build a snow cave. Go with your instincts.
1: I would probably build a snow cave at this point because I can build it. um, I would build a snow cave.
0: Okay. The uh, only reason why I would say maybe stick with the vehicle is you know what kind of energy it takes to build a snow cave. You start sweating and all that stuff. And right now, based on your injury, you need to be kind of in this, okay, I am in conservation mode right now, hoping somebody will see my signal from the fire, vice a couple hours of energy and effort and dehydration that's involved in building a snow cave even when you're healthy so i'm open for an argument on this one but my recommendation would be snow cave or i'm sorry vehicle
1: that's the guy that doesn't have winter warfare experience
0: (laughs) i got lucky i I, I didn't know that one so hey i'm learning too no it's all good all right not a problem though you're still plus 50. so you get back in the vehicle a couple hours go by and you're like, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna take another peek out, see what's going on with the fire, take a look around, and congratulations. You climb out of that vehicle and are face to face with a grizzly bear. Yeah, it's a shitty day for you, buddy. So yeah, you got a grizzly yeah. bear there, ten feet away. He sees you, hind legs. What do you do when he starts coming towards you? Are you going to Again, it's a grizzly bear. Are you going to fight back? are you going to play dead with this grizzly bear? It's kind of a 50-50 here, buddy. Fight back or play dead with a grizzly bear.
1: So, and I think it really is a 50-50, but uh, from everything that I've heard, playing dead typically has a better outcome if a grizzly bear is charging at you. Although I have heard that sometimes you can get big and loud and it'll deter them. Uh, from most of the situations i've heard you'll get bit some but usually the bear loses interest if you play dead
0: you're absolutely right based on a really shitty decision that you have to make in a really shitty situation here's the deal folks if you are in an area where you think bears are the best thing you can do is make a lot of noise before you come face to face and they're startled pushing their position so i always when i go hiking i have bells on my pack and stuff like that and i'm yelling hey bear hey bear when you're in a situation where, okay, this is gonna happen, I'm gonna get attacked. Grizzly bear, also known of as a brown bear, easily identifiable by a huge hump over their shoulder blades. If it's brown, lie down. If it's black, as in a black bear, fight back. So yes, in theory, if you play dead, a grizzly should lose interest in you pretty quick, although it's not gonna be fun laying in a ball and getting torn up for a minute or two. But according to today's hypothetical survival world, that is the correct answer. You are plus 60 again. Okay. The bear has moved on. All right. Now, are you going to stay put or try and head back up to the road? Clock is kind of ticking here. And it's just like, all right, what I'm doing right now doesn't seem to be working. Head back up to the road. See what you can do up there. Maybe create a fire up there or stay put where you're at.
1: What time of the day is it now?
0: So you're about noon. Temperature's coming up a little bit.
1: Okay. I'd probably, I'd head up to the road and try and be more visible up there.
0: Absolutely. I mean, and you know, this concept of probably, again, more than most people, are you going to stay and die or are you going to go out fighting and you're going to go out fighting? I know the way you are. So you're heading back up to the road, trying to improve your situation. So you're up on the road and you start hearing crunching of trees. Oh, great. I just got attacked by a bear. Now there's an avalanche heading my way. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) yeah, I told you it's going to be a shitty day. So what do you do on this avalanche? You're on the road. Are you going to head off to the right or left? Or are you going to try and climb to safety?
1: No, I I think you would head off to the right or the
0: left. Absolutely. And for people people to be able to visualize this, just imagine there's this stream of smoke coming towards you. Well, it's going to keep coming towards you if you're climbing in the opposite direction. So you want to make a hard right or a hard left to try and get out of the immediate path. All right, plus 80, your final thing here. You survived an automobile accident, head injury, bear attack by a grizzly, an avalanche, Yep, crappy day. And all of a sudden, you look up, and there we are, Jason. We came looking for you. You were a missing man, and you see us. And you're smiling, and we've got a bottle of Jack Daniels or a hot cup of coffee. Jack Daniels or a hot cup of coffee?
1: <laughs> I've got a head injury. You know, i, I got to tell you, I don't know what the answer is. It, it doesn't really matter. No, I would definitely be having Jack Daniels <laughs> after this day. <laughs>
0: well, you know what? I'm going to make it easier. We put Jack Daniels in your coffee, so you're set. Yeah, but you survived and you thrived. You did great with the plus 80 points on this one. Congratulations. You made it. Jay, we do something on a We call it an AAR after action report. Is there anything you learned from this? I learned a ton, man. I learned a ton about you. I I didn't know.
1: Absolutely, man. I never did a, I was a Jungle Warfare guy, so I never went through winter warfare. So, yeah, I'll be honest. That was the one question I kind of struggled with because I was like, huh, you know, do I get in the car or do you stay warmer in a snow cave? And maybe you do stay warmer in a snow cave, but I I did not think about all the effort you got to put to build it because I haven't built a snow cave. Yeah. So I learned that was a great lesson for me.
0: Well, so big thing we learned in uh, winter warfare uh, at team two is you do everything you can to keep from sweating because when you're wet, you're dead when it's negative two out. So yeah, that's always a, you're even slowing down the process of whether you're skiing or hiking or whatever, bring it down to a very manageable point. So Jason Redman, dude, I'm so proud of you, number one. It was an honor to have gone through BUDS with you and, and, and worked with you in the teams. And, and it's just great seeing you after 25 years and, and what you're doing. Folks, I mean, just soak it up like you were saying, like I did with my potenti. Soak it up because, Jay, you're offering, you're offering hope for people out there and there are a lot of hopeless people. Keep it up, buddy. If there's anything I can ever do to help out, I'm here for you.
1: Jay. Thanks, man. Yeah, likewise, back at you. You know, obviously, you're teaching people to survive. I don't know what the future holds. Uh, there may be more survival situations that are out there. I don't know. It's crazy times right now. But, hey, thank you for having me on. And hope, that is one of the biggest things, man. Being positive, try to lift others up. That's what gives people hope. And uh, it's a, it is a powerful thing.
0: Well, God bless you. I love you, brother. Thank you for your time. Yeah, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Can You Survive This Podcast is a Cavalry Audio production, recorded live from The Bunker in Denver, Colorado. Hosted by me, Kate Courtley. Produced by Brandon Morgan and Kate Courtley. Associate producer is Jeff Apple. Executive produced by Keegan Rosenberger and Dana Brunetti.
2: Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too?